Welcome back. I'm Peter St. Ange. This is a weekly roundup of my daily videos on the economy and freedom, where I try to cut through the BS and the smoke and mirrors and lay out exactly what the clowns are trying to do to you and what is coming next. With America distracted by two wars, perhaps with more to come, China is making a play to replace the U.S. as world hegemon. Last week, China hosted a summit attended by 130 countries, which is most of the countries in the world, that gave a place of honor to Vladimir Putin in a clear middle finger to the U.S. The summit was to celebrate the 10th anniversary of China's so-called Belt and Road Initiative, which is billed as a modern Silk Road that has so far plowed a trillion dollars of Chinese infrastructure investment into some 70 countries. These Chinese trillions serve two purposes. First, to make China's exports cheaper, since they can run through modern ports and trains that run on time, instead of the crumbling ports and railroads in third world countries like Kenya or Ohio. But there's a second purpose, to buy countries out of the U.S. orbit. As Larry Summers put it, when the U.S. comes visiting these countries, it brings a lecture, a list of demands about climate unions or LGBT policy. But when China comes, it brings a gigantic checkbook for goodies. Ports and trains, power plants, telecoms, networks, roads, even apartment complexes. Essentially, China brings a menu. You can have a port and a phone system or a railroad, hydro dam, and three apartment complexes. Mix and match. Do you want an appetizer with it? So it is easy to see why countries might go with China. Of course, this also gives China control over these countries. Not only the power of the checkbook, but a lot of the new infrastructure is literally handed over to Chinese companies to run. For example, Greece sold a two-thirds stake in its largest port to a Chinese company, who also owns 40 to 90% of major ports in Italy, Spain, and Belgium. The last is important because it competes with Rotterdam, which is Europe's largest port. So what is next? What's next is while our ruling clowns in Washington and Brussels claim that losing wars makes us stronger, China knows it is running us down. It's depleting our weapons and munitions, it is scraping our bankrupt Treasury, and it is driving inflation as federal spending ramps up to however many trillions it will take to stuff Americans into every conflict on Earth. Just last week, Republican senators were downright giddy how our twin wars will revitalize defense manufacturing. As in, Americans will not be making useful things like cars, but at least we can put our trillions to work blowing stuff up. Final point, China's push for global dominance is coming even as it hardens itself against the U.S. So China has been selling U.S. treasuries for a decade and is now accelerating the sales, whilst taking steps to insulate its real economy against the U.S. That includes cracking down on U.S. firms in China, even house-arresting U.S. executives. This pattern suggests that China is starting to think conflict with the U.S. is not only likely, but might actually be a good thing for them. So, while Joe Biden and Janet Yellen are out pushing their talking points that Americans can afford all the wars, our enemies know that we cannot. Fresh Data says the Federal Reserve's worst nightmare on inflation is coming true as inflation expectations are leaping at the fastest pace since the worst of the post-COVID inflation. The widely watched University of Michigan survey showed Americans' expected change in prices during the next 12 months jumped by over half a point from 3.2 to 3.8%. That
that is the biggest jump since 2022 when prices were just starting to come down from the $6 trillion COVID lockdown spending orgy. I've mentioned in recent videos how for the Federal Reserve, inflation expectations are the big one. It's the one that keeps them up at night because it means that people are baking in price hikes. They start asking for raises or negotiating inflation into long-term contracts. Or if they're a business, they finally raise their prices, which businesses are usually reluctant to do for fear of alienating customers. In other words, if expectations are rising, it is telling you the inflation is permanent. I've also mentioned in recent videos how the Fed sees inflation as a psychological operation. It prints as much as possible, and then it gaslights the public into either not seeing the inflation or failing that, thinking it is temporary or transitory in today's lingo. They conduct this deception partly through cooked statistics. I recently talked about the Big Mac as a shadow indicator of inflation, and they partly do it by promising that inflation will go away very, very soon, all in the hope that people mistakenly underprice their salaries, their contracts, and their products taking one for the team for the Federal Reserve's money printers. It is an ugly little job wiping out the little guy, but somebody has got to do it. The problem is this means in recent years, inflation expectations have consistently been too low by a lot. For example, during the peak of Biden's inflation, when CPI was bumping up close to double digits, inflation expectations among the public were just half that at five and a half points. So the American people were blindsided. That means even today's nearly 4% expectations are probably underestimating what is coming. After all, they're just a point and a half below that peak of Biden's worst inflation. So true prices over the next year could be quite a bit worse than even what we are seeing today. So what is next? None of this should be surprising for the Fed because they never fixed what's causing the inflation, which is out of control federal spending. In fact, that is getting worse, with the CBO now projecting $2 trillion deficits for, literally, decades. And so, with actual CPI, core CPI, and now inflation expectations also rising, we are getting more and more pieces fall into place for a replay of the 1970s long stagflation. Back then, it looked like a camel's back of rising prices, the burst of inflation followed by a few years of calm and then a second, even worse, mountain of inflation that lasted four years. In fact, that only ended with Paul Volcker's shock and awe rate hikes that took mortgages to 19% and took unemployment past 10% in a crushing series of recessions that left American cities looking like sci-fi dystopias full of Charles Bronson's and Dirty Harry's. And Washington, as always, has nothing approaching a serious conversation how to end it. A few days ago, Bloomberg was panicking about a new survey showing young people don't care about climate change because they are more worried about inflation destroying their lives. The survey was conducted by Seiko Epson asking more than 30,000 people in 39 countries if they felt threatened by climate change. Strikingly, the only group that came close to saying yes were people over age 55, of whom after 30 years of climate propaganda, 40% are afraid. The number then plunges by age. People in their 40s either don't believe in climate change or don't care about it by 2 to 1. Nearly 70% of those between 25 and 34 either don't believe climate change is real or don't fear it. 
That is the so-called COP generation, named for the first United Nations Climate Summit in 1995. They were supposed to be the foot soldiers of the climate revolution, and they are not. So what do young people fear? Easy, inflation, rising prices, and the falling wages that go with them. I mentioned recently that half of all young adults now live at home, overwhelmingly for financial reasons. A series of videos have been making the rounds on X, or Twitter, apparently shot by young middle-class left-wingers, I'm going by hair color and face jewelry, who are pissed off that they will never be able to attain the very normal lifestyle they grew up in. So they grew up in a four-bedroom house that their parents owned with avocado toast. Now they are 32 with roommates and instant ramen. One young man with giant earrings rants that he is, quote, becoming radicalized by high prices. So much for the revolution. Beyond losing the young, the climate racket is losing steam with the grown-ups, too. Reuters recently reported that investors are fleeing renewable energy funds. In just three months, the entire sector has collapsed by a quarter. This is largely because wind and solar are losing money even faster than their lobbyists can siphon fresh money from taxpayers. Meanwhile, politicians around the world are also retreating from the climate agenda as reality bites. France reversed a ban on gas boilers, the UK delayed bans on residential heating, Sweden abandoned its net zero goal, and Germany will reopen coal plants. Norway is now putting a fresh $18 billion into oil and gas fields. Even Bobby Kennedy is walking back the climate talk. Of course, even as climate fear loses the masses, the climate agenda is not going anywhere because the money is just too darn good. In fact, the climate propagandists are getting more shrill. Recently, the Secretary General of the United Nations thundered that, quote, humanity has opened the gates to hell by gassing up the station wagon. So what is next? What's next is that, as with almost every political issue today, the people are turning against the elite, especially the young. And yet nothing changes because the elite still have the power. So things will get worse in the short run, but reality has a way of settling debates and epic mismanagement of economies tends to focus voter minds. After all, if you can't eat, if you're single with roommates at 40, you start to think maybe you have been played, that maybe they are lying. Meaning we're about to see a whole lot more Bloomberg articles about lost revolutionaries who don't buy it anymore. Recently, the Wall Street Journal reported that the federal deficit is actually a lot bigger than it looks because of the odd way that Joe Biden's handlers hid a fat chunk with their student loan bailout. Now, the deficit was already looking pretty dire, hitting $1.7 trillion for the fiscal year that just ended a few weeks ago. That was up from $1.4 trillion the previous year, so about a 20% jump, which is pretty big for one year. Even that number was putting us on track, according to Congress's own bean counters at the CBO, to $45 trillion in debt by 2033, and wait for it, $144 trillion by 2053. Well, it turns out that was an understatement, because of what the journal calls the odd way Biden counted student loan cancellations. Essentially, when the Supreme Court struck down Biden's loan handout, the $333 billion they were going to give away got counted as a spending cut, which would be like me thinking about buying a Corvette. My wife tells me no, so I brag that I just made $68,000. So that little shell game means the deficit last year wasn't up $300 billion, 1.4 to 1.7. It was actually up $600 billion. That's a 40% spike on the year. 
taking it to a cool $2 trillion and dramatically accelerating Washington's $144 trillion debt utopia. Now, I mentioned in recent videos that even those numbers are a pipe dream for three reasons. Debt service, recession, and wars. On debt service, the government is now paying almost twice in interest what it was paying 18 months ago, projecting past a trillion per year and rising fast. Meanwhile, every recession hits the deficit hard. People who don't have jobs can't pay tax, and recessions send federal spending soaring as governments hand out fresh trillions. So going by recent recessions, these would bring the annual deficit closer to four to five trillion. Then, of course, the wars. We seem to be notching one world war per year that, for some reason, American families have to pay for. Just this week, Biden and Yellen gleefully waved off fiscal concerns about paying for two wars, saying, why no, we can afford them all, meaning you can afford them all. So toss all that in, and even the $144 trillion is starting to look very optimistic. So what is next? What's next is we are in a fiscal death spiral, and our ruling clowns are stomping on the gas. A few weeks ago, I mentioned a fresh $5 trillion plan to hand out global warming money to third world countries. We've got corporate welfare coming out Washington's wazoos, much of it to blow up things overseas. And of course, Joe Biden has now welcomed 7 million illegal immigrants to our welfare industrial complex, all of it with no end in sight. So yes, they will keep looting the treasury. In fact, they are speeding up and will keep going until either they're voted out, which is a remote prospect given both parties are in on the game, or until they break something, whether financial markets or what remains of the U.S. dollar, at which point voters rebel, whoever is counting the votes. This podcast is supported by our sponsor, MoneyMetals.com, the most trusted bullion dealer and depository in the United States. MoneyMetals is known for its competitive pricing, excellent customer service, and fast delivery of physical gold and silver, as well as their educational content and strong advocacy for sound money policies at the state and federal level. They've set the industry standard for selling, buying, and storing precious metals. If you're looking to help protect yourself against inflation and market turmoil, I hope you'll give them a try. To learn more or to buy your physical gold and silver, go to MoneyMetals.com. Jerome Powell did something very scary the other day. He criticized federal spending. When the spending mouthpiece complains, you know it is bad. At an event hosted by the Economic Club of New York, the Fed chair delivered his usual fortune teller shtick amid cloudy stars and dancing data. But one sentence stuck out, criticizing federal spending, with Powell intoning, quote, The path we are on is unsustainable. We'll have to get off that path sooner than later. Now, this is comic-level understatement of the fiscal death vortex into which America has fallen, with $2 trillion deficits as far as the eye can see, and Congress itself now forecasting $144 trillion in debt in the next 20 years, all while debt service, recession, and wars pile on to drive it even higher. But comical or no, this is a big step for a Fed chair who has been noteworthy in the enthusiasm with which he tongue-bathes the big spenders in Congress. To give a flavor, you can find a clip from June of a reporter asking Powell if federal spending is part of the inflation problem, where Powell acts like he had just insulted his wife, fuming, quote, We don't give advice to the government. We take spending as it comes, stick it in our model, along with a million other things. Now, Powell is not actually dumb enough to think that $2 trillion deficits is just one of a million other things. 
He knows federal spending is a fiscal black hole that is sucking everything in. It drains trillions from the productive economy, and going by the 10-year bond, it is now threatening catastrophe on the entire financial system. So why does Powell lie? Because the Fed's job is not to manage the economy. It's not, as the Fed claims, to carefully balance supply and demand and just the right amount of money so that America grows not too fast, not too slow, but just right. Alas, that is all a children's story. The Fed's real job is to print as much money as the people will tolerate. To seize via inflation what Washington cannot seize via taxes. And to deliver the proceeds first to Wall Street, then to Congress with cheap debt, and finally to the rich investors who own all of that debt. Thing is, this entire beautiful shell game depends above all on the goodwill of Congress. The Fed needs Congress to leave it alone so it can steal in peace. So no matter how reckless Congress is being, the Fed dutifully plays along. Meaning it is a big deal when Jerome Powell summons the will to criticize his boss. So what's next? What's next is when the professional counterfeiter is worried about too much printing, it is a concern. For now, Powell's still talking like a kept man, hemming and hawing about getting off paths sooner than later, perhaps even to cover his butt for what's next. Alas, Congress does not care what's next. There is no guardrail, no countervailing force to limit Congress's spending orgy. The media certainly doesn't call them out, meaning most Americans may have a vague sense that Washington spends a lot of money, but they have no idea a crisis is coming. And so Congress will keep careening off the fiscal cliff with Jerome Powell's sugar-coated butt covering a footnote on the way down. One of the more sobering thoughts at the moment is that as bad as things are in Joe Biden's stagflation miracle, we haven't even hit the full recession yet. When we do on present trends, we could come out the other end with a Japan-style zombie economy, one dominated by lobbyists and activists. That's because the modern recession playbook is pretty much set in stone, a set of suicidal policies that make the recovery as slow and as feeble as possible while transferring the maximum amount of resources from the people to the federal black hole. The standard recession story goes like this. When central banks crash the economy, it sends unemployment and bankruptcy soaring, filling food kitchens across America. That leads to deafening calls for federal action. Because when the pain is bad enough, the people beg to be controlled. Above all, they say, do something. And ever since the Great Depression, do something has meant two things. One, cut interest rates to zero. And two, expand federal spending as much as humanly possible. The problem is both of these are exactly the wrong thing to do. They stop the recovery in its tracks and they permanently shift us towards a zombie economy. We never actually recover. Now this is exactly what happened in 2008, years of stagflation that lasted until Trump. To see why, consider why the recession is happening in the first place. Because money was too cheap for too long, which funded a bunch of crappy businesses called malinvestments. When the Fed raised rates, those malinvestments started liquidating. Money was too expensive. When that happens in a cluster, we call it a recession. At which point, the correct thing to do is to accelerate the liquidation to free up resources for the next generation of healthy companies. That means the federal playbook of free money actually stops the recovery. It throws a lifeline to the malinvestments and their billionaire founders. 
letting them keep hogging trillions of resources and millions of workers courtesy of cheap loans. Of course, it gets worse because the federal government piles in to the tune of another couple trillion in spending. That hogs yet more resources, for example, steel and construction workers, shanghaied into rebuilding racist overpasses instead of, say, a machine tool factory in Wisconsin. So on the surface, it looks great. The construction workers are being paid either way. The steel is being used. But the recovery itself was stopped. The zombies are marching while the next generation of firms, the ones who should be building the recovery, are starved of resources. It's exactly what happened in Japan these past 30 years, essentially running the recession playbook all the time, with sky-high government spending paired with sky-low interest rates, delivering decades of zombie economy while racking up public debt equivalent to $60 trillion in U.S. terms. So what's next? What's next is, believe it or not, there was a time when governments actually fixed recessions by cutting federal spending and either holding interest rates steady or even raising them to accelerate the liquidation of malinvestments. Jim Grant wrote a fantastic book on the last time we did it right, 1921, called The Forgotten Depression, and I walk through some of that history in this week's article. Alas, the modern recession playbook is exactly the wrong thing to do because it does exactly what Washington wants. It expands Leviathan, puts even more of the economy in Washington's pocket, it gives them even more control over our lives, and it scares voters enough to do what they are told. Central banks around the world are going broke. The honest ones are coming in for bailouts. The dishonest ones, like the Federal Reserve, are hiding the losses. A few days ago, the Financial Times reported that the Swedish central bank, the world's oldest, lost 80 billion Swedish krona last year, which is about 7.2 billion US dollars. That is a lot considering that Sweden is smaller than Ohio. So it'd be about 260 billion in US terms. That's the central bank losing that in one year. And note that is on top of Sweden's government budget deficit. This is just the central bank. As a result of the loss, Sweden's central bank went into negative equity, so they are bankrupt. They had to come to Parliament to ask for more money, joining the Bank of England in the bailout walk of shame. As my colleague EJ Antonias observed, it is pretty amazing that central banks are going bankrupt considering they literally have a money printer. So why are central banks going bust? And the reason is they printed ridiculous amounts of money to finance COVID lockdowns, over $10 trillion worldwide, and then they use that money to buy bonds, primarily government bonds. The problem is bonds go down when interest rates go up. So now, after the most savage round of worldwide rate hikes in 50 years, they are losing money hand over fist on their mountain of bonds. Here in America, it's the same story with much bigger numbers. At the moment, the Fed is in fact bankrupt by a full trillion dollars and rising every month. Interestingly, the Fed will not have to do the walk of shame because of a very cute accounting gimmick where the Fed gets to redefine losses as, wait for it, deferred assets. They can do this because they make up their own accounting rules. And if you're curious what logic lies beneath, normally the Fed pays most of its profits to Congress, effectively commissions paid to Congress for the right to print money. So think of them as licensing fees for a licensed counterfeiter over at the Fed. Pre-COVID, those remittances were about $80 billion a year paid to the Treasury, meaning the real budget deficit was actually bigger. It was being offset by the counterfeiting fees. 
So now that the Fed has gone and lost a ton of money, it simply books the loss as a trillion. It doesn't have to pay Congress. Presto, a trillion of debt becomes a deferred asset. Don't try that with your bank. For a comparison, Silicon Valley Bank went under with perhaps $20 billion in net debt, nowhere near a trillion. And that's because regular banks don't get to rewrite accounting rules. They have to use the old-fashioned way of bribing Congress, and apparently Silicon Valley did not bribe enough. So what is next? I mentioned in recent videos how inflation is rising again, so rates will stay up, meaning the central bank holes will get bigger and bigger. That is going to lead to more central bank bailouts and blowing out government deficits from Europe to Japan to yet more irresponsible poor countries. As for the U.S., the Fed will be docking those annual remittances for decades to come, actually for the rest of our lives at the pace they're currently going, meaning yet more trillions in deficit on top of a national debt that is looking more comical by the day. Thanks for listening. Remember to subscribe to get next week's episode right in your inbox and visit petersanange.com for all the videos, archives, and fresh articles about economics and freedom. Okay, we'll be watching. See you next time.